Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have top producing investment sales broker and vice chairman at Ripco Real Estate, Stephen Prost here with us today. Stephen, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you for Thank being Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Before we talk business, um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and why did you get into this industry? Sure. Um, I grew up in Long Island uh, mainly uh, with a stint in Queens. And I, uh, I live in Long Island now as well with uh, my wife and two uh, children, boys, six and nine. Um, why I got in the industry, I, I started off uh, in college coming straight out and, and going to Wall Street. Uh, wanted to conquer the world. Um, started working for a big firm there. Uh, within two years, I did pretty well. Um, but I always had... Uh, really an entrepreneurship that I needed to fill. So um, I took the capital, um, you know, and I started with none. Uh, and in those two years, I, I was able to put a, a few bucks away. And uh, after that, I left and I started opening up businesses. Awesome. Um, I opened up several different businesses. Um, I actually packaged them up and sold them uh, while I was 24. And at that point in time, I was really looking for my new adventure. I looked back over what I really enjoyed the most over that first stint of my career. And it was the real estate portion. Mm -hmm. It was negotiating the leases, even though I'm not a leasing broker, uh, but just being involved in the uh, commercial real estate world. So once I sold my businesses, I wanted to go into commercial real estate. Um, CoStar had a top 10 list of the top 10 companies. And I actually met with all top 10. Um, and there was one that stood out at the time that I uh, ended up joining in 2005, which was Massey Knackle. Got it. Understood. And why did you decide to kind of choose Queens as your, as your primary market? Is it because of the knowledge, the, the fact that you grew up there? No, it was actually, um, I saw a need that needed to be filled. Um, Massey Knackle uh, was the first to expand out into the borough. Um, you know, obviously, back then, being an out of boroughs broker was not as sexy not as, as Manhattan <laughs> or even Brooklyn at that point in time. So I think there was a need there. I did have a knowledge of Queens. And, um, you know, I made a decision to really concentrate into Queens at that point in time. Got it. Understood. And how did your experience at Massey Knackle kind of prepare you to be a, a chairman and a leader in your business today? Sure. Well, there was a lot of great fundamentals that we learned there. And there's there's a lot of people in the industry that started their career with Massey Knackle all over the place. I know you've had a couple yeah. uh, podcast speakers on already um, from Massey. So, you know, they really force you to learn the business. Um, you know, they, they didn't even allow you to get on the phone for the first several months through mm. you, uh, until you went through a cataloging period. And that allowed you uh, to become an expert in a certain area, uh, which is uh, the territory system. Right. Uh, it's a great place to start off for young brokers. You know, you're forced to learn an area, become an expert. And it's really important to, before you get on the phone, to have that general knowledge, right? Foundation. So once you get on the phones, there's no turning back. And, and if you don't know your neighborhoods, if you don't know the owners, if you don't know the zoning, if you don't know the market trends, it's going to show on the phone. Mm, definitely. And what do you think you'd be doing career-wise if not commercial real estate? Do you think you'd be something in the entrepreneurial field? Uh, yeah, that's easy. Mm -hmm. I'd be an entrepreneur. That's awesome. the way I started. Uh, that's how I look at my business on a day-to-day -day basis, which I think you know separates me from 99% of the other brokers. Right. Uh, but I, I'd be an entrepreneur in, in some field or fashion. Got it. Understood. And Stephen, you mentioned that um, you have a couple interesting deals that you're working on right now. Um, talk us through these deals and how you're kind of able to stay busy in such times of uncertainty. Uh, yeah, we've we've had a good run over the last year in an uncertain market. Um, we've closed about six or six hundred fifty million in the last nine awesome. months. 
so very active, mostly development value add storylines. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to sell, um, you know, stabilized, you know, price to perfection product if there's not a storyline or some value add to it right now where the interest rates are. Um, and in my practice, um, it's I would say it's probably heavy development, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I sell really anything in the outer boroughs, uh, any type of product, um, asset agnostic, um, you know, in, in a field where a lot of people take a specialization in product. Mm-hmm. I never did. I, I really took more of kind of a, a territory focus. Got it. Um, so, you know, I've, I've become known to handle a lot of the more complex, more difficult, more hairy deals okay. in, uh, in, in the outer boroughs, especially Queens. Um, and uh, we have a couple interesting ones that we just closed. Uh, we closed on a three-acre site in Jamaica, 8901 165th Street that I was working on for years. Um, that was really a market mover in, in today's world, especially in a, in a secondary market mm-hmm. like Jamaica. Uh, we closed a few interesting ones very recently, including two days ago, we closed a $51 million transaction in Flushing. Um, that uh, is a covered land industrial play that we sold at a two cap. Yes, a two cap in today's world. Uh, but again, value add later on where... Uh, the owner will probably rezone it, uh, and then before he rezones it, he's going to use it. So a lot of those types of you know structured, you know wavy type of processes, but um, those are the deals that are getting done today. Got it. Understood. And this deal, the eighty nine zero one one sixty fifth Street deal, um, so it's the first to be uh, by a transit zone or in a in a transit area. Uh, it's a three-acre site, and it's in the transit hub of of Jamaica, which, um, you know, as far as our records show, it's one of the largest ones uh, in Queens in and Queens. In, in actually in the outer boroughs for the last decade. And how did this deal kind of come about? How did you put this together? So it, it was kind of a, I guess, a typical transaction okay. for me. I chased down the owner for, okay. for 10 years. Um, I kept peppering them with, uh, or them with information. Um, I've sold about two and a half million square feet in development in Jamaica alone. Um, so I had a lot to talk about. And then once the time came around, um, I was able to obtain the business. Um, there are, there were some really intricate, um, speed bumps, uh, with this transaction. It actually houses the MTA. It's their main uh, transit hub for uh, their their buses. Mm. Uh, so we had the MTA and we had everything that we had to deal with them and, and their bureaucracy and red tape that we had to get sign-offs on. So um, it was from start to finish, it was probably a nine-year process. Wow. Uh, and it was a four-year transactional span as far as when I got hired to the time we closed. Wow, wow. that's insane. Um, and can you walk us through a deal that you were very confident in that didn't end up going as planned. And how did you how do you mitigate risk in situations like this? Sure, I, I guess you have to look at everything in a larger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't force transactions. Uh, there's a, there's a natural momentum to them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I can use my skill set and my experience to help you know mitigate a lot of that that risk. Um, try to answer a lot of the questions that I know that I'm going to come up with, or that the the process is going to outlay. Um, but I, I would say probably one that uh, comes to mind uh, recently is uh, one that I just sold in Corona, Queens. Uh, it was a $50 million uh, hotel and development site that I actually sold four times. Mm. Uh, the, the last time that we sold, uh, we had a couple issues that arose, um, both on the, uh, the title, uh, both on the seller. There was a foreclosure in the middle of it. 
So patience, um, not trying to push people, mm. uh, just showing that you're the right choice to, to, to really navigate the transaction from start to finish. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised how little in a brokerage world that people take patience into consideration. You know, it's, it's not just all force, force, force. Right. You know, sometimes to, to get it over the finish line, there needs to be some things that happen and elongates or protracts the process to get to that finish line. So I think overall, I used a little bit of patience on that one and, and it turned out being okay. Understood. Got it. And Stephen, you mentioned in an interview with The Real Deal that um, flushing is and always has been an active place for development, um, even with downturns and, and times of economic flux. What about flushing makes it such an attractive and active market? Yeah, so um, I, I've sold, as of today, about four and a half million buildable square feet in flushing alone. Uh, I've been involved in that market you know, for the past 20 years. Um, we are uh, entrenched in the community. Um, some of my partners are on the, the flushing board there as well. Um, so overall it's got its own ecosystem. Um, I have touched most of the outer boroughs, especially Queens and, and flushing has been the only market in good, bad times, uh, good or bad times or indifferent that has had an upward trajectory, uh, during any, you know, downturn. Mm. Uh, it, it almost has, uh, you know, its own bubble around it where, uh, most of the, the land there continues to get, uh, elevated. Um, a lot of the people that, that are there, they want to keep their money there. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you live there, um, you really don't leave there. Right. So you have, you know, the younger community with some of these live work plays that, uh, these developments that are, that are in play right now. Um, the older community likes to stay there. Um, and the, the ecosystem is just something that is completely different than anything else in the New York city landscape. Mm. Um, the only real downturn or, or pullback I saw was, was, uh, with COVID, um, but that was momentary. Um, it's always been the most expensive land, the most expensive rents in all of the outer boroughs, wow. you know, even more than Williamsburg, Long Island City, you name it. Um, it's maintained $300, $400 a buildable. Some of the rents there on Main Street and Roosevelt are in excess of $300 a foot. Wow. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the overall occupancy and vacancy is very, very strong. Um, and, and it continues to prop itself up. So it's, it's amazing to see year after year um, the escalation of that community. That's awesome. That's great. And you said in another interview with uh, Pincus Co. Media that with the expiration of the 421A, uh, residential developers are kind of stepping back. Um, how do you predict this pull between developers and government kind of playing out in the next decade? Um, do you think policymakers will ever kind of shift their stance? I it doesn't look like it right now. Okay. So back in 2017, when the 421A uh, lapsed last time around, uh, I, I believe we had a, a lot more sensible people uh, in a position to make decisions, whether it's in Albany or politics. And it took a year and a half for 421A to get uh, re-rolled out. Okay. Um, at this point in time, I, I think we're going to have to go through some real pain and suffering before we get people to look through the lens uh, of the greater good. Mm. Um, you know, at this point in time, it's, 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 it's terrible. Um, development is a big piece of my business. Um, that is getting taken away. You know, you're still seeing some sites trade, but it's all condo development. Mm -hmm. Uh, but talking about the out of boroughs, condo development can only make sense in, in a handful of areas, right? It's, it's mostly rental. It's mostly workforce. Um, so new stock, unfortunately will not be built uh, for the foreseeable future. 
um, that has given way to some other opportunities like alternative uses, community facilities, users mm. stepping up. Um, but we need housing. And I think, unfortunately, um, from my take and talking to a lot of people that are a lot more connected than I am, um, it doesn't look like it's going to be any time in the foreseeable future. Understood. Got it. And what alternative uses have you seen that are kind of interesting for to residential? Sure. Um, I've, I've had a lot of... Um, exposure to uh, charter schools. Mm. Um, I've sold land to a few of the uh, very prevalent uh, charter school developers in the outer boroughs, mm. um, religious facilities. Um, we have senior care users. Um, uh, we have uh, different type of workforce uh, communities. We have um, uh, different type of programmatic tendencies, uh, you know, whether it's um, you know, city or state-based. Um, which I, I would say probably about 40% of the product uh, that I've sold at least over the last several months has been an alternative type of use outside mm. of just, uh, you know, plain residential. Got it. Understood. And can you give us a little perspective on ground leases? Um, in what cases would an owner want to ground lease their site versus sell it versus JV? Um, how, how should a broker kind of navigate this? Right. And, and these are the alternative and a little bit more complex, I guess, outside of a, a typical disposition that, you know, we pride ourselves as far as being able to, to, to execute at a high level. Um, and you don't see a lot of it in the outer boroughs right. for the most part. But um, overall, we've seen more of that in the last two years than I've seen in the last 20 years. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, pricing has changed, mm. right? So for an owner who has gotten X amount, uh, you know, knocked on their door for the last few years, uh, up until the last couple of years, um, it's hard for them to, you know, realize that their property is now 30 or 40 or 50 percent less That's than it. what it was at the height in 2017. So it could be as easy as value where, you know, they want to be able to realize some of that uh, value add. And the only way to do that is to stay in the deal mm. and, and do a joint venture uh, or a ground lease at that point in time. Uh, obviously, taxes, right? Uh, you know, we're taxed very heavily here in, in New York. So um, that may be a big issue if they have no basis. Um, maybe there's a partnership dispute uh, or a title issue, whatever the case may be, where they they're not you know they they're not able to dispose of the property. Uh, so these are all different ways that you know an owner can um, execute some sort of development on their land without having to sell it, or you know riding out the appreciation of a development with a, a joint venture partner who can you know bring a lot of value to the table as far as construction loan guarantees and being able to get. Uh, the land built. Got it. Understood. And you mentioned this concept that you're able to kind of set yourself apart as a broker by kind of doing things that nobody else wants to do. So what are these, give us some examples of things where you had to kind of think creatively and think outside of the box to get the deal done. I, a lot of it comes down just to my tolerance of aggravation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm able to, you know, handle a lot of deals at once. I'm able to to maneuver through it. I think it's just kind of the way that I'm built and the way I've over, always ran my business. Um, and you know, I think what, what really it comes down to separating myself from, from a lot of brokers is that I put my business hat on first. Mm. Um, I don't look at things initially as a broker, as a salesman, even though salesmanship is, is essential to the whole process. Uh, but I, I, I put myself in the uh, position of the owner. Mm. Um, I put myself in the position of, you know, how, I would go about bringing the most value to the property. And I, I think that that comes from 
just my my entrepreneurship and just the way that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So when I look at at something, I don't look at it, you know, just as in a black and white or X's and O's. I, I try to look at it afar from first and think about the best way to structure mm-hmm. it and how we can go about the process to structure the most value for that deal. So I think overall, um, you know, put your business hat on first before you put your broker hat on first. Right. And you'll easily set yourself apart from most of the brokerage world. Understood. So do you think it's important to kind of put yourself in, in the other person's shoes to kind of understand where they're coming from in order to put the deal together? Absolutely. Got it. Absolutely. There'll be more connection that way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I've had a lot of clients that have been with me for 15, 20 right. years. And, you know, in, in some circumstances, they'll only deal with me for their, their properties in Queens, you know, because... You know, it's not always yes, 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 sell, sell, sell. Sometimes it's, hey, it's not the right time right. to sell. Or you shouldn't sell this. You should look to, you know, co-develop it. Or, you know, it, you should lease it out first. Um, so those things that a, a normal broker would say, hey, I, I want the fee now. Right. I want to sell it now. It's it's not always in the best interest of the client. Understood. And what's your view on the investment sales market in general right now in New York City? And what advice would you give college students kind of about to enter this market? Well, short and short, it's choppy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's choppy, but it's a clear market. And what I mean by that is that there's some products that sell, um, and there's other products that were you know, very hot or desirable a couple of years ago that are almost impossible to sell right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned it before, but you know, fully baked product, fully leased out cap rate driven product. It's, it's difficult to sell right now. You know, I have products in, in some of the most desirable markets in the outer boroughs. And it's tough to get a seven or eight cap right now um, on fully stabilized product where I could have sold that property for a four and a half or five cap just 18 months ago. Um, but there's story-driven um, value-add type of product that that people like and still can raise money for. Um, and really, it's, it's small cap properties that are mm. trading. Um, so under 10 million, um, is 96% of the market trades right now, which is spectacular when talking about New York City, if you think about it, right? So, and that's just a functionality of who's buying that product, um, which I know I'm I'm diverting a little bit here, but I think it's important to note, um, you know, generational buyers are are the ones that are really uh, propping up the market right now. These are people that have 13 or 14 properties in a certain market, Um, and they're going to be there forever. They got a long horizon, you know, whether it be 10 or 20 years or just passing it down to their kids. Um, and they're looking to, to, to just take that cash flow and put it to use and buy that 15th or 16th property in that right. neighborhood. Um, and if it's a little bit more expensive than what they paid for the product 10 years ago, it's certainly less expensive than what they would have paid for it two or three years ago. Mm. They were priced out of the market from syndicators, institutional buyers and things like that. So, um, that's a really interesting dynamic right now. Uh, and even the larger players, mm. um, the ones that I've been selling product to for 30, 40, or $50 million, they're hedging the marketplace also and mitigating risk and, and buying three or four smaller products. Mm. So if you have something that's under 10 million right now and, and it's priced somewhat correctly, you'd be surprised what you can get on a disposition basis. Um, so that, that's really an interesting dynamic of the, of, of the market. Uh, as far as a, a college kid coming into the market right now, um, you know, I would say join a good team. Um, I would say join a team that has, you know, someone that's been in the market for a while, uh, but also, and it's probably difficult to find, but also a team that offers you some upside that you're not, um, you know, regulated to a different floor with mm-hmm. all of the juniors, right? 
the way that I run my business is that it's one larger silo. Everyone on my team, and I have a 13-person team, everyone is involved in every deal. Everyone gets a piece of everything. And, and everything's ex everyone's exposed uh, to everything. And I, I think that is very beneficial for somebody joining um, because a lot of the other opportunities that, you know, maybe someone I was looking to hire went for, you know, a paid $120,000 mm. analyst role with a fund. Well, those aren't around too much anymore. So I think for the most part, um, you know, join a team, uh, someone that gives you a little bit of upside, uh, that you're exposed to all parts of the transactional process um, and that you can grow with. Got it. Understood. And how do you, how do you kind of train your new hires to work out how real a buyer or a seller really is? <laughs> Um, is there a kind of a question that you like to ask to get a sense of um, who you're dealing with? So it's experience more than anything okay. else, right? So they, they, the the newer junior brokers they'll get excited, uh, right. which is which is great, but you know it's a vetting process and it, and it's it's really through experience. Uh, the way that I work is I, I work in the bullpen, and this was you know an, um, an old Massinacle thing. Mm -hmm. um, even when I was at my previous company, I was one of the only vice chairs that that continued to work outside of a, a glass glass office and. Um, the juniors sit right next to us, right? So I have a few senior partners that have been with me for nearly a decade now, and, and they sit right next to me, and the juniors sit right next to them. Uh, so being in that atmosphere, which kind of goes back to joining the right team, um, and being able to, to hear everybody, you pick up things, right? right? And if you're able to sit next to you know myself or one of my senior uh, guys or girls uh, for two weeks, that's like, you know, two months and in some cases, right. two years of, of, of training, right. of, of corporate training. Um, so, so being around people, listening, um, that is going to help um, with the learning curve to, to figure out who's real and who's not. Got it. Understood. Okay. And um, how do you remain top of mind with a potential buyer or seller without being pushy? Um, I guess following up in a, in a, in a, in a professional manner. Um, and not, not just looking for the sale, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're in the information business. We're right. not in the sales business. And I'm sure you've heard that yep. before. Um, if you have information, people will come to you. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's some of the, the, the deals that I've had, like the, the bus terminal um, in Jamaica that we were talking right. about before. The only reason that I won that, uh, that business is because I stayed on the, the seller and, and gave him relevant, real information without asking him for the Anything, business. Yeah. And if you do that, they'll come to their own realization uh, that you're the best fit for them. So I think pumping real relevant information, uh, having the knowledge that they can call you without you running a, a whole sales pitch on them every time that you right. speak to them, um, that's how you stay relevant and that's how you impact uh, people, you know, whether you're in front of them or not. Got it. Understood. So do you think that investment sales brokers should kind of change the structure of their follow-up with providing value instead of asking for value? Well said. Exactly. And how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your team? Um, so, you know, we're we're in expansion mode right now, um, and you know, we want to bring the right people around us. Um, you know, we're building out kind of individual silos under a larger silo for some of my senior uh, uh, partners. Mm -hmm. um, so it's expanding the team. Um, right now we're in, we're in a fantastic position. So this is over the last year and a half to two years at Ripco. Now, um, I'm able to have a full open runway, which is the first time in my career, which I've, I've had that, um, which is why I'm smiling right awesome. now. So <laughs> I'm able to take what I've done so successfully, um, in, you know, a, a portion of the outer boroughs, 
um, where we had 30, 35%, 40% market right. share. We've had more market share in one borough than, than I bet anyone else had in, in any other borough. Yeah. Uh, and now we're able to do that through the tri-state. Um, so our goal and, and how we're setting our goals is expansion of what we've done so well. And mm -hmm. now we're going to do it throughout the tri-state arena, which we've been, uh, we've been doing successfully now for the last year and a half. So that's, that's a larger goal. Um, and really for, I guess, for the team, it's, it's just setting example. I'm not the best manager. Um, you know, I, but I, I, I am a good worker. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a good executor. Uh, I like I like to think I'm a good per business person. Right. I'm a good person in general. So I think overall setting an example for your team and, and they'll follow. And and that's worked for me for the last 10 years as I built my team. Got it. Understood. And what do you look for in a in a new hire, in a new person joining your team? Uh, you know, someone who doesn't ask for Fridays off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing what uh, the younger generation uh, thinks is acceptable these days. But um, I guess that's a, a, that's a separate discussion right. altogether. But... <laughs> Uh, someone who's hungry, someone who will do anything to succeed, um, someone who's smart, um, or at least doesn't make uh, the, the same mistake twice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, someone who's open to learning and someone who's open to a, a longer horizon and putting in the work, but having it pay off on the back end, right? Because brokerage, you know, it's, it's even though if someone joins my team, they're a part of every deal, it, it's going to take them a Long year time. to two years to really make, I, I want to say quality money or, or money that's acceptable in, right. in the greater New York City area. So uh, patience, um, willing to put in the time now and have it pay off later on. Got it. So do you think a new hire kind of has to have this concept of delayed gratification kind of nailed down where they understand that what they do today will pay off in two years? Delayed gratification on on the money aspect, yes. On the money. But, you know, on, on a day-to-day, -day, you know, they should be winning small goals right. along the way, right? You know, right. being able to learn an area, being able to, you know, uh, have a presentation on top of mind, being able to value properties, which is very important for our business, you know, being a well-rounded broker. And, and for you to be a well-rounded broker, it takes time. You might be the best salespeople, but I've, I've met a lot of really good salespeople that were terrible brokers. Right. And uh, you know, I think our business is about a 97% fail rate. So you really have to be able to put together a full package and, and that takes time. And yes, that gratification, you know, it, it takes time. Right, understood. And what do you think makes a good leader and a good principal? Um, you know, I, I know it sounds a little bit corny, but I think to be a good person, Mm -hmm. you know, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right. um, you know, to be likable to an extent where, you know, it's, you know, you're not there to be friends with them, but um, you want people to feel comfortable. And if people feel comfortable, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll go further for you and, and for their team. Um, and it really, again, just going back to, um, by showing by example, mm -hmm. you know, if you're putting in the time, um, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, whatever 12 hours a day that is, you know, that'll, that'll come through, especially if the senior people have been doing it for a while. I mean, I don't have to be, you know, working 12 hours yeah. a day now, but it's just, it's ingrained in me. And, and if the younger folks see that, uh, they'll see why you're so successful that you're doing it after 10, 15, 20 years. Understood. Got it. And let's say somebody, um, wants to be a real estate entrepreneur. Uh, would you recommend for them to work at a big shop like CBRE or JLL uh, or start their firm directly out of college and kind of learn as they go? Good question. Um, you know, I, I'm probably cut of a different cloth. Um, so, you know, the, 
the larger houses, um, even though, you know, they have some good training at, at some of them. Um, you know, my vision was always, and I, I've seen both sides of the sword, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the first 17 years, uh, between more of a boutique group like Massey and then uh, a larger publicly traded company. Um, it's, it's, I think it's important to have a good company, a good base behind you, somebody with a good name that has uh, traits in place that you can get exposed to right away. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've always thought that you want more of an open runway. Uh, you want, you know, people that are there to support you, uh, not people that are looking to put you in a certain box right. or put uh, restrictions on you. You know, for my business, I'm a middle markets guy, right? So I need things done quickly. I need listing agreements signed right away. I mean, just this morning, I was, I had a pitch on Northern Boulevard on, on the back of a, uh, of, of, of a, uh, of a van. Okay. Uh, you know, you have to be able to move quickly and nimbly uh, for what I do, at least. You know, if you're looking to sell glass towers uh, in the city, you know, for a billion dollars, even though those aren't trading too much anymore, you know, you're probably better off, uh, you know, at a larger firm. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you're looking to do, you know, something transactional, uh, something middle markets, um, as long as you have some some stable training, mm. you know, you don't necessarily need to be at a, at a larger firm. Okay, understood. And what are some networking groups or community affiliations that you recommend um, young investment sales brokers uh, to be a part of to kind of propel their career, career forward? Uh, there's a lot of them out there. Um, and, um, you know, between my team, I think that we have, we're, we're a part of either myself or them, um, you know, probably part of two dozen, mm. um, different groups. Um, it, it's really where you're going to focus in is probably where you'll want to, um, network in. Right. Okay. So, uh, when I started, uh, Queens chamber was great for me. Um, and I'm, I'm part of a couple of the bids like the flushing bid and Jamaica bid since I was doing a lot in those areas. So you want to be strategic about it. You know, you don't want to be out five nights a week, you know, uh, you know, and, and pull time away right. from, your you business. know, your money time, yeah. right? You got to work at work. Uh, you can't just be out, you know, mingling just for the sake of mingling. So you got to be strategic about it. Um, you know, I try to do it still now, you know, two days a week. So, um, I look at what really, uh, would be most impactful. Mm. Um, you know, I, I try not to go to anywhere where there's, you know, 95% brokers, even right. though it's nice to see everybody. Uh, I'd rather be one-on-one with a client Got at it. that point. Understood. And what real estate asset classes or property types do you see potential for in the coming decade in New York City and beyond? Uh, sure. I mean, I still like land. Uh, I know it's land and, and development is a dirty word right now, sure. but I, I think that there are opportunities in the right areas and we're going to continue to see them. Um, the market is still continuing to reset. Uh, but you know, if you can get land at 50 cents on a dollar on what it was trading for just 18 months ago, um, in a quality area, um, that has a longer term, uh, you know, horizon for value. I I still like well-placed lands. Um, I like uh, retail as well, Mm. uh, neighborhood retail, right? Not big box and you know, most of the outer boroughs is uh, neighborhood retail, but retail that's essential for workforce housing. I think that's that's key. That's that's going to continue to play, um, and and land. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And if you were to zoom out and kind of look at the trends and your skill sets and your interests, what's the overall theme that led you to this point today? Uh, competing. Mm. Uh, you know, I love to compete. Um, you know, I love to see the leaderboard and my name on top. You know, I love to win. Um, 
I also like to solve, right? I, I like to be continually pushed. Um, you know, I guess that's why I like the complexities of, of some of these deals and the hairier the deals, the mm. better, because it, it continues to evolve uh, your mind, uh, how you make deals work and how you make deals happen. Uh, so continuing, continuing to be tested. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, that overall has been able to help me scale, uh, continue to stay relevant, uh, continue to sell more and more every mm. year, because if, if you can show people that you can continue to, uh, be productive and execute at a high level in times that are good, bad, and different, like right now, right. uh, you come out of that market a lot okay. stronger. Yeah. And I've seen that time and time again in these downturns. Got it. And what has been the most difficult point in that in your career? And how did that kind of shape you as an individual from that point on and as a businessman? Good question. So I, I think the, the 2008, 9, 10 uh, debacle um, was probably the most difficult in mm -hmm. my real estate career because there was no money. There was no money out there for anyone to buy anything. Um, you know, the, the banks weren't lending. And it would just seem like a... Like a, a a deserted baron, you know, in, in 2009 and 10. 2008 was okay, um, at least in my viewpoint. But 2009 and 10, just nothing was trading. Right. Um, so I made it a point in 2009, and I was only four years into my commercial real estate career, to not change anything, mm. to not pull back, to not look for something different, you know, not create the wheel. Um, I Stay built my track. business. Yeah, I, I built my business uh, on the phones. So I continued to make 250 and three uh, and 300 calls a week, and anyone that I worked with uh, at that point in time will uh, will contest to that. Yeah. Um, and I continued doing the blocking and tackling. Um, and then when I came out of that, um, I was far ahead of of most of the other brokers in the office or most of the other brokers in general. Mm -hmm. I was I continuing to build my business, continuing to be relevant. Um, I worked hard and did sell some properties where, you know, other brokers didn't sell anything. Right. Uh, I continued to expand my focus throughout Queens, not just a, a little portion of Queens that when I started, I, I considered continue to evolve my, my business. Mm. Uh, so in 2011, when, you know, so you started seeing some green shoots and, you know, the sun was shining a bit again, um, my business immediately took to the next level. Mm. And I never looked back from there. So um, I think that we're going through something like that right now, even though uh, it's it's certainly not apples to apples. There certainly is plenty of cash out there or access to capital. Right. But um, now is a great time to go back to basics. Um, so when the market does turn, and it could be a year, it could be 18 months, it could be two years from now, uh, the people that keep their head down and continue to run their business model, they're going to come out ahead just like I did back in 2011. Understood. So do you think that um, the reason you kind of came out ahead was that everybody else was kind of playing on defense and stepping back and sitting on the sidelines and you kind of took an, uh, the opposite strategy and you kind of attacked and that's kind of what set you apart? Uh, part of it, um, you know, it was a scary time. So not mm -hmm. a lot of people knew what to do, right? right? So you know, if someone doesn't know what to do, sometimes they do take a step back. It may not be defense. It just may not be, may not having a, a roadmap or Got a it. game plan. Okay. Other people look to reinvent the wheel, right? When something's not working, you know, try to do something else or try to try to try a different territory or try a different approach. And that's not always the right answer. It's just sometimes you got to grind a little bit harder for a little bit longer. Got it. And Stephen, you've closed over $7 billion in transactions. Who do you learn from at this point in your career? Uh, I try to surround myself with people who are continuing to excel. Um, 
I try to <clears throat> surround myself, excuse me, with uh, people who are, um, you know, uh, deal makers or, um, you know, people who are uh, excelling in different fields of real estate. Mm. <clears throat> um, so, you know, we've just brought in a debt team, uh, you know, a high performing debt team into Ripco. You know, I'm, I'm you know, really pinning that to my business a little bit more. Um, you know, the retail leasing aspect of mm. it now with with uh, the the dominance that Ripco has, I'm, I'm starting to fold that into my business a little bit more. So um, continuing to be uh, as well-rounded as possible without losing my main focus, which Got is uh, dispositions or, 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 you know, getting sidetracked. But, right. um, you know, adding more revenue streams by different service lines and, and putting the right people around you, it helps you get smarter. It helps you make more money. It helps you, uh, you know, really advocate for your client a little bit more when you're able to, uh, you know, give them those other service Definitely. lines with people that you trust and know that they can execute at a level like you can. Awesome. Great. And what idea do you believe um, about the Queens commercial real estate market that many people you respect disagree with you on? I think it's the most undervalued mm. um, borough. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm biased, but I see it because I've lived it for the last 20 years. Right. Um, it's probably the most under-retailed area, um, underdeveloped. It, it's a slower-moving uh, pace in Queens. And I, I say that in, in, a, in a balanced and good way. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Brooklyn market, especially over the last few years, I mean, you know, it's just the values there. It's just been so high paced. The values there are incredible. It's gotten so built up. Um, it's been the sexiest area in, in New York city. You know, I think that overall Queens ha still has a, a lot of wood to chop. Got it. Um, there's a lot of workforce housing there, which is great, stable income. You know, obviously not as as great on the appreciation scale, but um, you know, even through uh, COVID, uh, you really saw little to no change outside of of some of the waterfront areas. But the the heart, you know, along the seven train in Queens, the occupancy level didn't really move didn't much at all. Uh, so it's good, stable assets for the longer term. Um, and I think some of these other secondary markets, again, outside of the waterfront, mm -hmm. uh, they've gotten built up a bit and they're taking a breather now, but they still have a, a long ways to go. So it's, it's a great place for a long, longer term stable investment. Um, and it's going to continue to fill in for some of this newer construction, whether it be residential or retail. Got it. Understood. And do you think the job of a commercial real estate broker can ever be automated? Parts of it. Um, I mean, the, the technology now, um, to what it was when I, when I first started, right. uh, when I used to carry around a, a portfolio of, of handwritten, you know, notes and, and tax maps and pictures and, right. and information, uh, for some of the building owners to what it is now is night and day. Um, but New York city is, is, uh, a breed of its own. There has to be connections. Mm. Um, there has to be, you know, uh, you know, a, a greater structure of mind of putting these deals together. Um, so I think if, if, if CRE does get fully automated, New York city would be the last place to get automated. Right, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what are some things you had to sacrifice to close nearly $7 billion in deals and 700 completed transactions? Uh, you know, time, um, you know, I, I'm obsessed, you know, with work, mm. you know, I'm, I'm OCD with responding and just getting things out that day. So 
you know, that's um, gotten take away a little bit from my personal life. Mm. Um, but I like to think I've, I've balanced that out over the last, you know, several years. Mm. I'm lucky enough to have a, a wonderful wife that's helped me along the way. I, I've been with my wife now for 20 years. Uh, you know, we started a family, you know, several years ago. I got two kids that are nine and six. Um, so that helps with balance if you do it the right way. If you got a good family life, you yeah. know, if you can leave, you know, the house in the morning and know that everything's taken care of and the family's good, you know, you can, you can, you know, if you're working 10, 12 hours, you can do 15 hours of work mm. in a 10 hour day, which is, you know, part of the reasons that uh, I think I've been so successful is that I've always tried to master doing 15 hours of work in a 12 hour day. And when I started, it was probably 20 hours of work in a 15 hour day. But, um, you know, I, I think a little bit of that was taken away as far as the, the personal life in the beginning. But, you know, I've worked on being a better person, uh, being a better family man, being a better business person, being a better partner. Um, and uh, that's allowed me to, to um, I guess, to normalize that a bit. Got it. Understood. Yeah. And so you mentioned this concept where you're kind of able to do 15 hours of work in a 10 hour day. Um, what are some strategies you, you employ to kind of go about this? Do you actively remove things that kind of don't benefit you with your goals? Yeah. Um, I work at work and that's okay. what I've been saying for a long time. Uh, I don't take lunch breaks unless right. it's with clients. If I do, you know, eat something, I'm eating at my desk. Right. Um, I don't socialize too much around the office. Um, just being efficient. You know, there's small things that you can do throughout your day to be more efficient, right? right? Um, and even though you're at your desk for 10 hours, I would say that, you know, most of the people that I see, not in my office, of course, but outside of my office, if they're at their desk for 10, 10 hours a day, they're doing five or six hours right. of work, yeah. um, which, you know, if you want to be able to have that, you know, well-rounded life and do things outside of work and be, you know, the 1% of your industry, be efficient at work, mm. work at work, cut out all the nonsense, cut out all the, uh, the cooler talk and just... Right you know, be there, be present, send out emails. I mean, when I started, um, a, a, a good friend of mine, he always had a funny story that he continues to tell from the day. I, I'd be there calling on the phone and people would come over to talk to me. Uh. And I, I'd have the phone to my ear and my other hand on the clicker waiting for them to kind of ask me what they oh, need to be asked so I can go right back to the phone. Wow. Um, so small efficiencies. I mean, that's, that's a little overkill probably, but uh, small efficiencies like that allows you to work at work and, and really do more for the time that you're there. Got it. Understood. And who are your role models and people you kind of looked up to when you were coming up in the industry? Uh, you know, role model is a strong word. Mentors is a strong word. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to be around a lot of very successful people in the industry. A lot of the people that I started with, um, and um, I've taken away a lot from them, good and bad. Mm. Um, really, a, a lot of the stuff I learned was what not to do, right? You know, seeing people do certain things and, and me crossing off the, off the list or, um, you know, being cognizant of, of not to do those things. Right. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't have one that I could throw out there as far as a name. I've had many um, along the way, probably two dozen that, you know, I respect in this business. Um, that I think they're doing great things that have done it the right way um, or have corrected and, 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 you know, are now doing it the right way or have done some things that I, I've taken a step back and say, ah, oh, that's, that's, that's really innovative. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that work hard um, that I admire. So it, it's been a collective uh, process as far as me taking things from people in the industry that mm -hmm. I, I've known for a long time, both good and bad. Got it. 
And what drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, philanthropy? And when would you kind of say you succeeded succeeded, and you can kind of retire? I've never, I've never said I succeed. I'm never happy. <laughs> okay. Even, you know, even in, a, you know, over the last week, we closed over $100 million in deals in the last nine days. And even then, you know, it's it's not like I could sit back and have a few drinks. Hey, right. you know, I, I've succeeded and I can take some time off. You know, I'm, I'm always on to the next. I always want to continue to compete. You know, right now, um, you know, I'm really taking pride in building out a team mm. um, throughout the tri-state. Uh, again, that's been something that I've always wanted to do. I haven't been in a position to do it. Um, so that's really driving me right now, seeing my my senior brokers that have grown with me in my career um, that, you know, I brought them on as analysts and, you know, associates and even interns and them really thriving and mm. bringing people under them right. to, to help build out kind of counter silo to, to my silo. So really building a team and, and building um, an enterprise that I've always wanted to in commercial real estate. Mm. Um, so that's really what's, what's pushing me on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but you know, I still like getting hired on deals. Sure. Uh, you know, the other night I, I picked up a listing, a, a physical listing agreement over in Long Island. You know, I, I still like the chase. I still like the hunt. I still like succeeding and I still like, uh, coming through and executing for my clients. Got it. And Stephen, I have my final question to wrap this up. Shoot. Um, what advice would you give your 22 year old self about life, business and relationships? Wow. Um, that's like a, uh, a really introspective question to, to end up with, but um, I would say, you know, probably continue. I would probably give him some insight on, on some, some things I've learned later in life mm-hmm. in my thirties and forties, uh, as I matured, um, couldn't say it'd be one thing, just probably a little insight on, on what to, to concentrate on. Right. Um, I would probably, you know, tell myself, you know, probably take that step um, a little bit sooner as far as to be able to control your entire destiny. Mm. Uh, I was on such a trajectory for a long time, just, you know, building, building, you know, hitting 100 property sales and 200 and 300 and 400. Um, I was, I was not that I had blinders on, but um, I was moving very, very quickly, you know, at the speed of light. And if I would have probably took a step back, I probably would have made the move that I did two mm. years ago, uh, a little bit sooner uh, to control kind of kind of more of 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 the destiny